0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 430th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is author Mike Cole, who is going to discuss with us about his book, The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. The history buffs for today's show are Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. The theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap-Zaptil. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. To begin with, we'd like to welcome our guest to the show, Mr. Mike Cole. How are you doing, Mike? Good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, glad to have you back on the show. We call this first segment to Tanaran, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, Mike... Can you start us off with some basic information um, or build a premise, Mr. Swords loves when I say that, on what being a Spartan warrior was really like? So uh, the, the common understanding, I mean, the very word Spartan in the English
1: language means, you know, without luxury, right? So there is this myth that most people accept that the Spartans were history's greatest warriors, that they were unbribable, that they would endure any hardship, that they never surrendered and never ran from a fight. And uh, this is so commonly accepted that most people don't even question it. And even a cursory view of the historical sources proves that this is not true and that the Spartans were average human beings just like anybody else. And the only thing I did in the whole premise of this book is I went through their military history and I kept score. When did they run? When did they surrender? When did they win? When did they lose? And, and created that record. And in the center of a book, there's a scorecard that presents that to everybody. So to your question... What was it like to be a Spartan warrior? A lot like being any other kind of warrior.
0: Okay, well then, can you um, give us some examples, since you studied their military history? I'm a history major, like our other friends who will be speaking with us shortly, and you are right. You get this image that the Spartan was the ultimate warrior whose mentality never left boot camp. I mean... um, I guess the closest premise that I would have to sit there, like the Waffen-SS with uh, uh, Germany in World War II, just these warriors that were bronzed and braden that would never flinch or never blink. Uh, What was their training like, and and how was this myth kind of created?
1: So the the myth is created as early as 480 BC in the Battle of Thermopylae, which is the, the famous battle, which was the subject of the 1998 Frank Miller comic 300, and then the 2006 Zack Snyder film of the same name. Those, that film and that comic book really sent the, the myth of Spartan warrior supremacy into overdrive, not just in the United States, but around the world. But when you picture a real Spartan's life, we have no evidence of them conducting even military training. We have evidence of them training for sports, um, we, well, we have evidence of them engaging in, in, in feats of physical fitness, but we don't have any evidence of them drilling in formations or drilling in arms. The picture that the sources paint is of aristocratic dandies. These are people who were liberated from having to do any real work by a slave caste, the helots. And they spent their time in breeding horses and managing their agricultural estates in engaging in sports and in politicking. They did outclass other Greek heavy infantry in that period. But Aristotle points out that um, the Spartans were considered tough not because they trained hard, but because they trained at all. That is to say the extremely amateur nature of hoplite warfare, of ancient Greek warfare, where the average person was a farmer or an artisan who picked up a spear spear and shield when their uh, city-state called them, you know, basically like a reservist. And if you're an aristocratic noble who has a slave doing all his work, and you, you have time to train, period, because you don't have to be working in the fields or throwing pots or whatever, of course you're going to be more disciplined and organized. But the idea that Spartans were professional warriors, the way that we think of even the Waffen-SS you just described, or any kind of modern soldier, it's just not borne out by the facts.
0: Okay, well, when I was uh, taught this ideology, um, years ago, along with the Spartan men in their training, excuse me, the Spartan women were right behind them. And I can remember reading excerpts that they trained nearly as hard as the men and that athletic toughness was as important to their societal makeup and image as it was for the men. Is this true or is this bogus as well?
1: So, you know, this is the thing. One thing I always like to, to tell, I make sure everybody understands the misogyny of ancient Greece is epic. If you think Women in modern Saudi Arabia have it bad, and, and you absolutely should. It doesn't hold a candle to how women were treated in ancient Greece. However, Spartan women had a degree of uh, equality, which really was revolutionary by the standards of the day, but still horrifying by our standards. I mean, a Spartan woman could do things like inherit land, which was a very big deal back then. But the idea that they were training for war, th- there is not a lot that's bearing that out. We certainly do have example of a tolerance of some nudity, which by the very, very prudish standards of ancient Greece was really revolutionary. We do have evidence of them engaging in athletic contests. Um, but the other problem, too, when we try to analyze Sparta is that the Spartans left us no writing about themselves. They did leave us some epigraphy, which is to say inscriptions, but no literature. So everything we read about the Spartans is written by an outsider. And this sort of this breathless, fanboying fascination and othering that goes on, You know, the the Spartans worked pretty hard, it seems, to to be mysterious. And that's resulted in what um, the French historian Francois Ollier calls the mirage spartiate, the the Spartan mirage, meaning that these are people who are very, very difficult to see. So, in a lot of these questions, it's hard to give a specific answer. And that's why I'm having to kind of come at it obliquely. But no, I I do not uh, see a lot of evidence of Spartan women training
0: for war. Okay. We have a lot to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. Uh, This is ROI at KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
2: The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station, submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 88.5, 1061, or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org.
0: Hello and welcome back to ROI Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is author Mike Cole, and we're talking about his book, The Bronze Lie Shattering the Myth of spartan warrior supremacy our history buffs for today's show are jay swords and rick sweet jay as the resident ancient retired teacher why don't you start us off
3: hey mike i want to give you a specific example of a myth that i suspect lots of people have heard or a story that lots of people have heard and then i want you to, to talk about it in terms of how this this uh story became sort of part of the, the uh the Spartan mythology. So the story is the young man who was uh the young Spartan boy who uh, decided to go out and uh steal a fox and um, he's carrying it back and the idea was to be able to get back to the barracks before he uh got caught and he's confronted by uh, an adult, and so he throws his crimson cloak over the, the over himself. And he's talking to this guy, and everything seems to be fine. And then his eyes roll up into the back of his head. He falls over the cloak opens, and the fox has eaten a hole through his stomach, and he's bled to death. Um, I know lots and lots of different books have carried this. This sounds like a wonderful piece of propaganda um, that was encouraged around. Do we know where that story comes from, or how uh, that kind of story got into the mythology of Sparta?
1: Yes, uh, uh, we do. Um, uh, and the answer is Plutarch. Uh, and you have to remember, Plutarch is a Greek writer writing in the Roman age, some 500 years, 500 years after the events that he's describing. At this time that he's writing, Sparta is almost a tourist attraction, for <laughs> Roman tourists that are coming to see the, uh, the, the brutality of Spartan culture. And there's a lot of evidence that they're deliberately hamming it up to try to get uh, uh, dollars in. Another point about Plutarch, and I, I know probably a lot of your listeners were forced to read him in, in high school English, is that Plutarch wasn't an historian, he was a moralist. And his Moralia and his parallel lives, the goals of those books was not to inform people through accurate historical inquiry like, uh, like um, Herodotus, but rather to uh, uh, work to benefit the moral, the moral character of his readers. So he had an interest in perpetuating propaganda. Now, was Plutarch taking that story from another source that we've now lost? Possibly. Um, but if you look through the Moralia and you look through the parallel lives, you will see that they're all kind of like this. These very sort of convenient and uh, touching uh, and moving stories. So, no, it, does, it certainly does not appear uh, to be true. And most importantly, when you're doing history, it's just like doing police work or an intelligence work. I also have a background in law enforcement and intelligence and any time that you're uh, uh, trying to investigate a crime or you're trying to um, illuminate an intelligence matter for a military commander, one of the things you're always looking at is vetting sources, multiple sources. You want multiple sources to corroborate uh, the events. And this story that you're describing, and in fact, most of the stories about the Spartans that Plutarch lays out are single source. The only source for them is Plutarch. And that right there should give you a uh,
0: cause of, for doubt. So you're saying just because he's 500 years late that he might be off?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty He's pretty far removed, and he's got a pretty intense
0: agenda. Although compared to some so, yeah. of the historians, he's like the next day compared to some of them out there. Rick?
4: Yes, Mike, uh, out of curiosity, because my background is also political science, what is the purpose of the mythology? This purely propaganda? Was somebody making money from this? What? Uh, why so, the big yeah. lie? So I think I think it's I think it was a propaganda
1: effort that got out of control. So the Battle of Thermopylae, which is the subject of the film 300, which is the supposed 300 Spartans, it wasn't 300. It was a thousand along with 7,000 other Greeks failed to stop <laughs> yeah. the Persian army. For, failed to stop the Persian army of Xerxes. Uh, at the pass at Thermopylae, and it's this famous, famous story of this defeat that was as glorious as a victory. When the truth is, it was a disastrous defeat, and the Hellenic League had just gotten their butts kicked. And Xerxes was rampaging unopposed through Persia, the one army. Um, excuse me, through Greece, the one army that had been sent to stop him failed. He burned Athens, which was the jewel in in Greece's crown at the time, and the the Hellenic coalition under the um, and this is. Uh, an idea that uh, was advanced first by the uh, popular historian Tom Holland. I don't want to take credit for it. Themistocles, who is this master Athenian spin doctor, sees the Acropolis of Athens burning, knows that the Greek army has been destroyed at Thermopylae, and he is looking for some way to keep Greece from surrendering, you know, because there's no hope. So he comes up with this story of a fated suicide mission with 300 brave Spartans that, that, that... and this glorious sacrifice for these incredible self-sacrificing warriors, these, these unimpeachable warriors, um, you know, really will bolster Greece's morale and and cause them to fight again and and come back and win, which indeed they did. Um, And that propaganda tale and an effort to keep the coalition from surrendering really got out of control as, as tales do. And through that game of telephone down the years, um, became something larger than life,
4: and one more. What thing is it, is that- why did it live for so long, though? Why Why is it continuing on, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years later?
1: Because it com- because it plays on a very basic human insecurity, which is that we're not good enough, we're not tough enough, we're not strong enough, we're not disciplined enough. You know that this this basic. You know, we, you need to eat better, you need to exercise more, you need to study harder, you need to work harder. You're not enough. And if you really want to be great, you need to be like the Spartans. There's some, you know, religions work this way, too. If, you're, if you boil down the, the, the Christian ethic, the example of, of Christ is given to Christians, you don't, you don't need to worry about um, understanding all this. See this man who is embodying these virtues. Be like this man. Be like Jesus. It's the same thing here. You want to emulate these warrior virtues in our society? Be like the Spartans are reputed to be. And I think that's an incredibly powerful impulse in humanity, our insecurity, our sense of inadequacy. And when there's a tailor-made myth that fits it, it's really got legs.
0: Ah, the worshipped it. martyr. That always works. Um, yeah. My question is, going back, of course, you have you have the description or the image of the Spartans being pretty much um, Conan the Barbarian 2,000-something years back. And then you always have the image of the Athenians being the cultured, Um, citizens that were intellectually superior and that their society was the heaven on earth. Um, uh, Who's it? How propaganda driven is that as well?
1: Right. And so you can surely see the roots of this in in the cold war, right? Is that you have an historical infrastructure in the United States that has has a vested interest in the Reagan years in, in showing a corollary to the United States and the Soviet Union where the cultured and advanced United States and the barbaric Soviet Union and the Athens, Sparta conflict in the Peloponnesian War uh, forms this really neat corollary to that, and, and sadly that myth too has stuck around. But no, of course not. Athens was an awful, also a horrible slaveholding power, incredibly imperialist, incredibly heavy-handed, and the truth is is that Sparta had. There's a lot of evidence that Sparta did have thriving arts and thriving culture. Remember, we're limited a lot in our understanding of Sparta, by the lack of of, um, stories that have come down to us from the Spartans themselves. So the the image that we're getting is is sort of tarnished by this outsider's view. But no, I think it's overly reductive and simplistic to describe the Spartans as sort of, as you said, Conan the Barbarian 2,000 years ago, and equally reductive and simplistic to describe uh, Athens as a city on the hill. Jay?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if how much of the development of this myth also was played by uh, the lead up to the Peloponnesian War and then the aftermath. Because certainly one can see the Athenians, just as the United States did with the Soviet Union, pitching their enemies as these horrible, barbaric, uncivilized uh, folks who will destroy civilization if allowed to win, and then later on playing the Spartans as these invincible warriors. Yes, they beat us, but, but look, we eventually came back and and so forth and so on. And, you know, so how much did the the politics of the next Say 150 years play into the myth of, of Spartan superiority.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a really it's a really tough question to answer. Um, I do think that it's important to remember that this this uh, core political difference between Athens and Spartan of the Peloponnesian War, which is really can be some boiled down to democracy versus oligarchy, right? When we look at that in modern terms, it's very misleading. Athenian democracy was not American democracy. This is, you know, this is very, very elite people voting. It would be like if you, you had a, a huge income requirement in the United States, you had to make half a million dollars a year or more to, to have a vote, you know, that's sort of what you're looking at it in Athenian society. And when you talk about oligarchy in Sparta, it is ruled by an elite, but it is it is a still representative rule. I mean. Sparta even had two co-kings, not one king, and those two co-kings were under the thumb of a a council of ephors. And what you really have is two societies that are both really quite oligarchic in terms of, of their wealth. Um, and and really more similar than different. I certainly do think that there was a lot of propaganda um, advanced by both sides to try to other the other. I don't necessarily know that Athens was portraying Sparta as barbarians, but they certainly were portraying them as different from us to try to uh, advance why, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was Athenian citizens should be committed to the contest for sure.
4: Rick? Yeah, Mike, uh, you mentioned – uh in the introduction part the uh the lie about the military prow- prowess what was uh what was their battle success or or record how good were they in uh the combat other than being massacred by uh chief <laughs> <laughs> what what sure. what was so their record they, they...
1: Their record was okay, Um, and I have the scorecard in the middle of the book, and and you can see at a glance, they absolutely had glorious victories, and they were a pretty peerless heavy infantry force, but their conservatism, social conservatism, prevented them from investing adequately in combined arms, missile troops, naval forces, siege warfare, cavalry, a lot of that they outsourced to mercenaries and allies, and it really bit them in the butt uh, as time went on. But again, I want to be clear, I'm not slamming the Spartans, they were not awful. But and this is uh, there's a phenomenon called praetorianism. You know, I've I've worked throughout my military and intelligence career with Navy SEALs, with with Delta Force, PJ Marsock, uh SAS operators, you name it. I've, I've worked with um, elite special forces from around the world and they are absolutely elite. They are trained better. They are um, they they're they have the sort of moral authority that comes from being classed as elite fighters. But they're also human beings. And they make mistakes and they get scared and they and they some of them are bad and they steal and break the law. You know, these are still human beings. And when you look at Sparta's record, that is the picture that comes through this sort of relentless humanity. Uh, I am not taking away their glorious successes, but it's really important that we be cognizant of their failures,
0: too. Um, Mike. It was a ways back, but I remember reading Thucydides and his discussion. Of course, because he was an actual soldier with the Peloponnesian War, and mm-hmm. what I remember of him, uh, and I kind of I thought he was one of the reasons to be credited as one of as the first historian mm-hmm. because he kind of obviously didn't have the modern um, technical research statements that you you said that historians have today, but he did a pretty good job from what I remember of calling things as best as he saw them not saying that there wasn't going to be bias or human um human um opinion but uh he pretty much called it someone straight especially for someone in that much of the classical age uh was many of the myths kind of pulled away from Thucydides because I don't remember him really pushing uh, myths in in imagery like you said Plutarch and others
1: um yeah so it's tough right it's really tough Thucydides is a great source i agree with you i really like him i would caution you on calling him the first historian that uh, distinction goes to herodotus
0: and well even and they said herodotus, herodotus wasn't as good yeah that debate's <laughs> going on forever i get what you're saying
1: and a lot of people get mad at that too because the truth is they're probably chinese historians who predate herodotus um but the but yes Thucydides does certainly call out uh, the Spartans. He narrates their defeat at Sphacteria in 425 BC, where 120 of their elite Spartiates, their their nobles, surrendered. And he tells that story. But he also, in that story, talks about how it shocked all of Greece, which is a, a statement that I doubt. Look, Thucydides was an Athenian general, and he later on got done dirty by Athens. And all of those things feed into you know the way that that ancient sources write their reports. Um, and they don't have this idea of objectivity, journalistic objectivity, historical objectivity, police and intelligence investigative objectivity. These are modern ideas, right? They they didn't really exist in the ancient world. Um, and uh, um, you got to, I guess, like the real heart of both being a cop or a detective or an intelligence officer or a historian is vetting those sources and, and considering what the agenda of the writer was. I will say I agree that Thucydides does pretty good uh, for Students of Greek, his Greek is impossible. If you're translating him, it's really hard. Um, but uh, you know, you, you the the trick of of the work is to uh, is to really vet those sources and and rate what you think their agendas are. Okay, hey, Jay.
3: Um, so I want to sort of bring the past into the present a little bit. Um, as a medieval historian, I have noticed with uh, a great deal of alarm at how much. Um, White-ring, white ring white right wing uh supremacist groups um have sort of glommed onto Viking history and remade it in an image that feeds their own propaganda. Sparta strikes me as another one of those um places where people who are looking to promote a supremacist uh point of view might use that imagery and those names. To promote themselves, um, what have you seen in terms of that kind of use of the Spartan myth of invincibility?
1: Yeah, so this is the core of my work, right? And one and the big reason I wrote the book since 2016, in particular, but all throughout. I mean, Hitler used Sparta. Um, But but since 2016 and the the rise of the Trump movement in the United States and the sort of resurgence of global right-wing extremism around the world, Sparta has been at the forefront of that as a galvanizing symbol. It's just undeniable. The Oath Keepers who attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the Generation Identitaire in France, Alliance Nationale, which is a fascist, uh, neo-fascist movement in Italy, the Golden Dawn in Greece, you name it; they all use the Spartans, the Spartans as an image, and in particular, images from the film 300. And it makes sense because the narrative that far-right groups want to make is an anti-immigrant and particularly an anti-Islamic narrative. This idea that the West, uh, you know, which is just a nutty term, West of what, but what you know, Europe and the United States, I guess they mean, are, are under threat from hordes of immigrant of immigrants from Uh, you know, uh, whose skin doesn't look like theirs. And uh, that is what the story of 300, this false story, uh, uh, advances, you know, this Persian invasion and this small group of beleaguered white men holding them off. And that's really what galvanized me to write this book was that, um, look, I can't shut down every far right group in the world, right? I don't have the power to do that. But what I can do is take their symbol away. Um, And I can take their symbol away by telling the truth about it. And, uh, and I'm not talking, you know, because I know some of your listeners may be conservative. I'm not talking about normal conservative, uh, normal right-wing politics, reasonable right-wing politics, which I have a great deal of respect for and want dialogue with. I'm talking about far-right extremist violent groups. Um, and, and, yeah, they all of them are in love with the myth, not the reality of Sparta. And if my book does anything, hopefully it'll take that story away.
4: Okay. Rick? Uh, I was going to say uh, you can say the far right. I call them nutcases, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm on the radio, Mike, I, I do I do have a, a question on you know I've touched on and off. Uh, John and Jay are more immersed in early history, uh, Eastern history, east of where I am, and uh, uh, looking at the warrior societies and the armies of, of uh, the ancient world. Uh, who would you Consider being the equals to uh, the Spartans in terms of their military uh, prowess right. and, uh, during this time?
1: Right. I'm so glad you asked me this question because this is another thing I feel really strongly about. I- I've lived my whole life, as I said, in the special operations community, in the military, in policing. Um, and I'm going to proudly say no one, no one. Um, this idea of praetorianism, this idea that military elites are uniformly good at anything, it just doesn't scan. Um, The reality is we have to do the complex labor of analyzing individual military records and individual engagements, and someone who does well in one situation may not do well in another. Um, And uh, I really think addressing that individuality and being willing to say, address that complexity is a key part of defanging these symbols that are misused by groups on the far right.
0: Okay. Uh, Mike, it is custom to give our guests the last word on the show. You have a minute to tell us why do you think debunking the myths of the Spartan Warriors superiority, which you just kind of did, is relevant (laughs) in today's world?
1: (laughs) It is relevant because it is exactly that reason. It is misused as an organizing symbol by the far right. Again, I'm not talking about reasonable conservatives and right-wingers, but the most violent elements in our society. And it really behooves us to take that myth away. And what better way to do it by telling the truth of who these people are, and also this, that when you see people in their flawed humanity, when they do do great things, then we can get inspired by that and feel connected to that because if they did it, then maybe
0: we can't too. Uh, when we'll come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
2: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes the 430 show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our guest, author Mike Cole, who talked with us about his book, The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. The history buffs for today's show were Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. So are nutcases. Good night.